Hi everyone, I'm Courtney Downs and welcome to the Fearlessly Inspired podcast. I'm a military veteran, speaker, advocate, and multi-passionate entrepreneur. I inspire women of all ages to live boldly and fearlessly. I use my voice to bring awareness to difficult topics and my goal is to inspire all women to discover their voice and their most authentic self in order to live a fulfilled life and career. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back to the Fearlessly Inspired Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney, and today's podcast is is dedicated to October's Domestic Violence Awareness Month. As a warning, today's conversation could be triggering or difficult for some, but it's also an important topic that that has affected the lives of many to include my guest today. My guest today is a longtime childhood friend. Tristan and I have known each other since I was probably about six years old, and I actually remember her childhood phone number as well as mine. So that's probably really weird. You probably didn't know that, but I do remember your phone number. I won't say it just in case it's still your mom's phone number. She just got rid of it about two weeks ago. She like is done with it. That is so funny. But Tristan is a mother of three and she is a domestic violence survivor. And she is, I love to call her my friend. So thank you so much for being with me today, Tristan. I'm like super grateful that you have accepted this invitation to be a guest on the podcast. And I can't wait to just jump into this conversation. So, so Tristan, I know in the past you have shared pieces of your conversation or (laughs) pieces of your story in conversation with me, but I would love if you could just share some of your story with myself and our listeners today. Sure. First, thank you so much for having me on. This is um, obviously a topic that is very near and dear to my heart. Um, I experienced it personally for a very long time. Um, And I think it's important, um, not just for the individuals that experience it, but those individuals that witness it, that oftentimes choose to say nothing. Yes. Um, So a little bit about myself. Um, I started off having children very young. So I had my first son at 16, I had my second son at 20, and I had my third son at 26. Um, So um, I think part of what contributed to the ability for me to be in a relationship that was abusive was the early choices that I made and in becoming pregnant early. It made me very dependent on individuals um, financially. Mm -hmm. It was very difficult. So I always worked and I graduated high school and I went to college, but just financially being that young with children and not having a career first, Mm -hmm. um, I feel like it didn't set me up for success. So it left me vulnerable for the situation. Like in a codependency relationship almost that turned into something more toxic. Absolutely. Yep. And so my, even my initial relationships with boyfriends, I would say lean towards kind of codependency, just the way I was raised. I was raised in a house that my parents weren't there. We were latchkey kids. We came home, there was no one there. So we were kind of, it was fantastic. We thought growing up, we were left our own devices. We ran all over the place. We had a million friends. We did what we wanted to do, but it also kind of, allows you to not learn the rules, not learn kind of like what you're supposed to be doing and not really focus on positive behaviors. It was kind of 
basically what you just figured out on your own. Great. So like I said, we loved it at the time, but it didn't lend to <laughs> being very successful to begin with. Right. I, well, I know firsthand because I was at your house probably most days, you know, at least through first through eighth grade. So <laughs> uh, I pretty much your house was basically my house at, at some point. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so how did so how did that codependency relationship like what what did you notice? Like, how did you start noticing like it was becoming toxic? Like walk us through like how you started seeing what it unfold, or even if you couldn't see it then, now looking back, how did it unfold for you? Sure, so I will say to begin with, I've had a couple, definitely one of my relationships, my very first marriage was my very abusive relationship, but even the relationship before that Mm -hmm. was controlling. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, um, the individuals that choose to behave in that manner are very good at what they do. They're very manipulative and they don't do it fast. They do it slowly. They do it methodically. And when I say they do it, what they do is they break you down as a person very slowly. They separate you from your friends. They separate you from your family. Um, they put you down slowly mm-hmm. and in little bits so much so that you don't even realize it's happening when it's happening, generally speaking. When you get ladder into the relationship, it is no secret. They're not quiet about it, they're blunt, but they're typically only that way with you. The outside world does not often see that behavior. It's not usually outside of the home. They're very, very good at keeping it inside of the home and keeping it hidden. And they are very well aware that at that point in time, you as a person, you're not a whole person anymore and you're very unlikely to stick up for yourself right. and you're very unlikely to say anything because you are afraid of what the outcome will be if you do. Right. Absolutely. Um, I, you know, I, you, you know that I've, um, I have, I, when I was in the military, I worked with a lot of domestic violence and sexual assault survivors um, and victims. And so I saw that a lot. And what was, very similar to what you said is that the abuser was most usually the military member. And oftentimes the military member was like a prestige soldier, like no, uh, no, you know, and a lot of times nobody would believe what the, what the wife or the spouse was saying, because he was great at PT. He was great. He was getting awards. He was like, you know, doing all the right things um, and was a stellar soldier, but at home he was a totally different person. Correct. And my um, ex-husband was very much like that. He was um, the youngest person in Keene to ever be on the school board. He was a straight A student. He was, he got a hero's award for saving people out of a car fire while we were actually married. Um, He was top ranking at his job. Um, The I will say that there were definitely individuals that saw signs and saw some of the things that he did. Mm -hmm. Um, But he could also be volatile sometimes with them, depending on their position. So if he was their boss, Mm -hmm. he was very likely to be vindictive and they knew that. So 
they would not say anything or they would not step in if they noticed something because they were afraid of what he would he could potentially do to them maybe not physically but right. he could very much affect their livelihood he could fire them and he yeah. would have no problem doing that so basically if he, he, he abusers you know especially like yours like if they have a a a, a title or a position that has rank or some kind of authority over somebody else, it kind of gives them like this platform to stand on to make other people, not just you, fear. Yes, and that's exactly what he did. He did it often. So you said your first um, relationship, one of your first relationships was um, what was abusive or um, did you, I don't, I'm not sure if you said that one was the worst or the second one, your marriage was the worst. The second one was worse. The first one was very controlling. I mean, I think it, it, it very much led me right into the second one. It was like jumping from the frying pan right into the fire. And, and, you know, I'm curious, you know, obviously there's so many, so many stereotypes and like, um, I, I can't think of the word off the top of my head that are surround of domestic violence relationship. Um, and I read this actually, this post the other day that said, you didn't choose and you didn't choose an abuser. You chose the person they pretended to be. So, and you basically just kind of said that, like you, it started small. It started with little tiny things. Um, when did you, like, did you, when did you start, did you reach out to somebody? Did you tell somebody like, how did, how did that, how did that work for you? So um, when I referenced my first relationship, I never said anything. Um, it was, gosh, many, 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 many years after that. But my second relationship, um, I didn't reach out. I was actually working at a hospital and I had a coworker that I became close with while at work. Mm -hmm. And I'll put this into a little bit of context. At that point, I had, I had two children by that point. Okay. Um, I was still attending. I, I believe I was still attending college. If I wasn't attending college, then I had just graduated. Mm -hmm. So I was probably 21 years old, maybe 22. Yep. Um, and she had been in a previously abusive relationship mm -hmm. and she had made a comment to me and she said straight out she looked at me and she said so how long has he been hitting you for oh my and God. I just kind of like looked at her and I'm like what are you talking about because it was total denial I hadn't told anybody like I think my parents questioned it and I know my brothers questioned it but there was never an open conversation surrounding it Right. And so I just kind of like looked at her and I was like, what are you talking about? And she was like, well, I've been there. So whether you're going to tell me now or later, basically just kind of know I'm here. And so it kind of moved on from there. And I did talk to her a little bit. How did it, how she, did you feel in that moment when she said that to you? Um, terrified, first and foremost, terrified that somebody knew because the conversations that happen behind closed doors are basically you're dead if you say something. Right. And, you know, there are different levels of abuse mm -hmm. and I was confident in that relationship. At some point, if I didn't leave, I would die. And the only saving grace for me was my children, because I don't think I would have left if it wasn't for them. I don't think I would have thought outside of myself. 
Right. So, I mean, so the, my first thought was I was terrified. I'm like, oh my God, I don't want anybody to know this. I mean, if somebody finds out and then he finds out that they know, I'm, I'm in worse trouble. Right. Because he's going to, I said something. It's almost like, so I've, I've been keeping up these walls. Like, and like, how has somebody penetrated that? How have, have I, have I done something to let the secret out, not knowing? Yes. So the first thing I did was self-blame, which is actually perfect for an abuser. That's what they want you to do. That's what they train you to do. And that's how they keep you exactly where you are is self-blame. And so that was my initial response, which was, oh my God, how did she know? What did I say? What did I do? And I totally denied it. Totally outright lied, said, nope, not happening. Um, There was one other incident while I was in school Um, I hadn't realized I had a big bruise behind my ear from being punched in the back of the head. Mm -hmm. And a girl that I was working with was like, oh, wow, that must be sore. What is that? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And she mentioned the big bruise. I knew what it was from. And I said, oh, I just fell down the stairs. And I was thinking to myself when I said that, it's such a pathetic comment. And, And I was hoping that she believed me. Right. And then she didn't say anything after I, to this day, I don't know if she believed me or not. I never asked. Right. I was just wanting her to stop asking. Yeah. And it was like the so, first time popped to your head. You know what I mean? And I think yeah, and so, most women will yeah, do. Yes. And, and the funny thing is years later after, um, you know, researching and reading and knowing a lot of things about this now, that's very common for an abuse victim to say, I fell. Yep. It's like one of the first things that they say, because it's the easiest to explain a bruise. Although oftentimes how they say they fell doesn't explain the extent of the bruising or where it is. Right. Which, right. It doesn't, it doesn't add up basically. But where are the bruises on your elbows or your knees or other places? Like that's the most unlikely place that you would get a bruise. You know, if you think about it now, but you know, Correct. but you did what you had to do, like in the spur of the moment and you gave an excuse. Yep. And he was very strategic. He would very purposely hit in places that he knew could be covered up. The only thing that he did often that probably in hindsight was uh, all of it was a mistake for him. But I mean, a mistake is he was a big strangler. He was a choker. And so sometimes that would show. And then I would have like hemorrhaging in my eyes. So people would see that and question that. Yep. Very, very telltale sign of the eyes. Yes. Yeah. Especially working in the medical field. Yes. And the crazy thing is, um, I had had an incident where we had gone to a company Christmas party. Mm -hmm. Um, him and I had had a disagreement. Um, not only was he physically abusive, he was sexually abusive. So he had asked for me to perform sexual acts with someone at that party. And I refused. Mm So he, very violently physically abused me that night and refused to let me out of the hotel room mm-hmm. well during that I wore contacts at that point in time he tore a contact and I didn't have any extra ones with me yep. so I couldn't see the next morning mm-hmm. so I actually he drove me to an eye doctor in another in another state the next morning to go get new contacts mm-hmm. and they didn't they said nothing so no, I, your eyes had petechia. Oh yeah. I had like bruising on my neck, my face, my eyes. And they said nothing 
and, and like to look back on that I'm like that's crazy like how did they not know yeah it's it's uh, <clears throat> just a side note my my friend of mine she's in Germany <clears throat> but she's a social worker and every year during this month well she used to do it she doesn't do it anymore but when she was actually a, a social worker acting in that position she used to do her makeup to look like she was a domestic violence survivor and um it the reason why she did it was to see how many people would ask her if she needed help just to kind of like to sh to show that there needs to be that bystander intervention um and you kind of like like you you can't help somebody with unless you ask and you know so many people just ignored it and so I think it's it's like the same thing just for you you went to an eye doctor you literally were face to face with somebody you had the telltale signs of strangulation even in your eyes that they were probably looking in you know yep. and so it's just so easy it's it's just it's just one of the worst things I think um it's one of the hardest things to teach is bystander in intervention and not because not that it, like you said not that you're going to respond to it every time but maybe on the fifth time or the sixth time that somebody says, you know, let me help you, Tristan, you might be ready. On average, it takes a victim seven times before they leave. Yeah. So tell me, what was what was the the end of the line for you? What broke the camel's back? Um, a lot of things. I I really seriously got to a point that he was hitting so often and so violently mm -hmm. that I truly thought I was going to die. He choked me so many times. Like one of the last times he did, he picked me up off the floor by my neck and held me against the wall till I almost passed out. Mm -hmm. So it, it was just over and over again. And I just thought to myself, if I die, my children are left with him. Right. Absolutely. And that was my deciding factor and it it was again terrifying I mean he had complete control over my money I have absolutely no idea what I made for money during that time for five and a half years of my life I have no idea what I made for money he kept all of my money mm -hmm. um he absolutely everything it was went directly into his account it was not a shared account it was his account I well it probably was shared but I'll just say I didn't have yeah. access to the account <laughs> Um, and even the control of his family, um, I will say that his mom was not physically abusive. I don't believe I never saw physical abuse out of her, but she was extremely manipulative and verbally abusive. And she was that way with everyone. Okay. Um, and so she was even that way with me to the point where when I had my second child, who is a child with this abuser, um, she, when the child was one years old, she tried to tell me he was too old to have a bottle. And it was, it was, it was very strange. Like she was also abusive, like to me, like controlling to me and what I would do. So when I would, when he, I did have him arrested at one point, there was hundreds of times that it happened, but at one point he was arrested. Mm -hmm. Um, and he had, um, 
choked me again at that point, punched me, and he actually broke my front tooth. And so I had waited and the, his reasoning was because I came home late and didn't tell him I had been working and I used to work between an hour and an hour and a half away. And basically our patients were late. So I came home late. And so that was his excuse. He dragged me up and down the stairs by my hair. And then I waited till he went to sleep. And then I very quietly, and this is kind of pathetic to think about it now, but I very quietly went and took my children out of bed. They knew at at four and younger to be quiet if I came to get them in the middle of the night because of the situation. And so we left and I had, I remember I had a Ford Escort and it was a standard, so a manual transmission. And what I did in order to not wake him up is I pushed the car all the way down the driveway. And then without hitting the ignition, if you got it rolling, you could pop start it. And that's what I did. And And so that was the only time in five and a half years I had him arrested. And it was not long after that, that I filed for divorce. Uh, Granted, it took, I was, it took me a year actually to file for divorce. I think after that. Right. it, but it's still, even when we weren't together, he was very controlling and manipulative. He was very controlling through the court system. He even got the court system to grant him um, shared custody. Oh, oh. That's, I'm so, that's so frustrating. Like, you know, especially because, you know, my mom worked in the courthouse. And so it's like, it, it's just, it just boggles my mind. It just goes to show how manipulative and fantastic they yeah. are. It just kills Because they- he did it with everyone. He was extremely, he's, he's nice looking, mm-hmm. he's successful, he's charming, and he's that way with everybody. So it was just very hard to fight that persona. Mm-hmm. And they look at me and they're like, oh yeah, well, you were the 16 year old that was pregnant. So what are you doing? You know, really? Who's the one that's at fault here? Yeah, of course. The victim blaming begins, of course. Yeah. So, um, so Tristan, what, you know, what was the biggest lesson that you learned from part, from this part of your life? Um, basically, you know, to try to look for and educate my children about early signs of controlling or abusive behavior Mm -hmm. to break that cycle. Right. Because I never want my children to be abusers and I never want my children to be abused because my children, my two oldest children saw that. And I know that. Right. And I, they definitely have memories. They definitely, we've talked about it. They know what was happening as much as nobody would like to say they did. They absolutely knew what was happening. So I guess that kind of leads me into like, how has those experiences affected how you, how you've raised your sons, like even as they're adults? Cause I know two of your sons are adults now, correct? Well, I know one of them. Uh, actually, all of them are. Oh my God. I thought your little <laughs> one wasn't. <laughs> no, he's 19 now. <laughs> oh, you blink and everybody's like so old all of a sudden. Oh, I know. God. So how has. So basically in raising them, I think um, initially I was extremely overprotective. I would not allow anyone to watch my children. Mm -hmm. I would not allow 
I would not allow anybody into my little inner circle. And when I say inner circle, I mean like my mom, my dad, and one friend. And that was about it. Because I didn't trust anyone. I didn't, you know, it just take it. Everything that you think that's positive in a relationship, an mm -hmm. abusive relationship takes that away. There's no trust. There's right. no closeness. There's nothing. There's no loves. There's nothing. It's not there. Mm -hmm. So uh, initially I was very overprotective. Right. Um, and that in itself is not good for children either, because then they don't have the experience of other people and other relationships. Mm -hmm. So eventually I was much better at that. And I, I will say probably my youngest son benefited benefited the most. I, I grew up a lot in 20 years by the time he came around, it was, you know, of raising age. Um, so he, all of my boys are very well-rounded. All of them are extremely respectful. All of them, I will say, cherish their partners. They happen to be girlfriends, but partners. Um, and I very purposefully worked hard to make sure they know and they knew what a respectful relationship was. Um, it took me a very long time to talk about the abuse with the children. And the reason that I chose to wait mm -hmm. was because my middle son is half his father. Yeah. And I didn't want him growing up thinking he was a bad person because his father is a bad person. Right. I totally understand. So when he was old enough to kind of understand that, we've had a multitude of conversations yeah. and obviously not abuse with me. And I'm, I know that, you know, I, or at least I believe, you know, his dad um, is in prison yes. and has been since he was three. So, you know, fortunately for me, he had that restricted access. Right. So his influence was limited. Yeah. And that's like a, a silent, you know, like, I don't want to say victory, but like, oh no, it's a victory. Absolutely. Like you just like, as much as you're like, you, you know, it's just like really hard to like, to explain, like, not that you don't want your kids to have a relationship with their father, but you just don't want that, that toxicity to, to affect your relationship with your son, to, to affect them to just be it's just like unhealthy all around because you're, you're you know he's not going to change like that's just who he is he he doesn't even know how to be anybody else and Correct. so no matter what he's going to poison the people around him that know that part of him correct and, and he's still like, that way who you are you know like oh Correct. you're such a liar blah 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 you know and so that, that that's a it's definitely a silent victory yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean that the physical barrier of a prison wall was yeah. one of my best blessings. Absolutely. Tristan, I, and I know, like, like you said, you, you got pregnant very young, um, but, and you really didn't know, I, I don't think you probably had the ability to discover who you were as, as a person by yourself, you know, um, I know I didn't until I was much older, <laughs> but how has this experience changed you as a person, good or bad? Um, so I think there are good and bad. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you're, 
hitting the nail right on the head when you say, I didn't even know who I was when I got pregnant the first time. I mean, I don't think I really knew who I was when I got pregnant the second time. Um, I think probably now, I'm, you know, I'm almost 46 years old. I think probably now I'm figuring it out. Yeah. Um, you know, for obviously for all my 20s and a great majority of my 30s, I was raising kids. And it what for me, it wasn't about me at that point in time. I, I was focusing on my children and I and not just my children, though. I will say I was focusing on healing. It took me over 10 years after my divorce to even talk about it, to even talk about the abuse at any length, other yeah. than to say yes, he was abusive. Yeah. Um, so the good is I talk about it now. I want other people to talk about it now. My children aware are very aware of it and they do not tolerate it. They will not tolerate it. And they're very vocal as well, which I'm very proud of um, because I've taught them. They, they have to be the intervention because oftentimes these people don't have anybody else. Right. So the, those bystanders are often the only people that speak out. And then the bad, I'm, I mean, I don't know if you'll call it PTSD. I would call it PTSD. Absolutely PTSD. I have a lot of reactive emotions. I used to have reactive behaviors. They're now reactive emotions. And I say that because I control the behavior. It, I don't think the emotions will ever go away. Right. But I definitely have controlled the behavior to not be like um, explosive or... Yeah. Um, and when I say explosive, I don't mean like hitting. I mean, if I felt like somebody was being controlling, mm -hmm. I would verbally blow up right? or I would feel like I need to get out of this relationship. I can't do this. I'm not doing this even. And I think sometimes it was only my perception right. and not really what they were doing because of my situation. It was it something, but I never, something about it triggered you. And that yeah. initially was a behavior and a, and a, a, a verbal reaction. And now you've, you've toned down that part. And now you just, the trigger is just emotionally affecting you. Correct. Correct. And now I'm in a place that it might take me a little while. Still, it takes me a little while, not a little while, a long while. It mm -hmm. takes me a long while to finally say, if I feel something is not right to say, okay, I'm stop mm -hmm. and let's talk about this. And it's not stop, get out of here anymore. It's stop. Let's talk about this. And I'm going to tell you how this feels from my side. Yes. And so that took a very long time. That's well over 20 years. Yeah. And, and you know, like everybody's, everybody's healing process is going to be different. You know, it looks different for everybody. And and it, that's okay because as, but as long as you're, you know, I feel like as long as you're heading in the right direction and you can see your own growth and progress and you can feel it, that's what matters. Correct. Yeah. And I, you know, there's been other things like along the way that I've learned and that I've changed and that I've grown from, Yeah. but I think conversations in general are hard for people mm -hmm. in that even just for women in general to say, how they feel about a situation, it's hard. even now without being in an abusive situation is hard. Because you um, don't, you don't, you're, you're already thinking in your head how the other person is going to perceive it and how they're going to react to it. 
Right. And that's how we've been conditioned. Yeah. That's how we've been raised, which is we are caretakers. That is our job. And so when I think about telling somebody that I'll frankly say you're pissing me off, like on the inside, yeah. like I think about, oh, is that going to hurt their feelings if I say that? And it's kind of like, and I think that can go two ways, right? Like, I think it is important, you know, for our own emotional intelligence, you know, we're self-aware of ourselves and how, how we're triggered and what affects us and how we're, how certain situations make us feel. But with good emotional intelligence, you have to consider how, 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 what, how, how am I saying something and how is it going to perceive and how will they be emotionally affected by it? But I think communication is ultimately the key is being able to um, express how you feel, how something is making you feel and, you know, and communicating that with your partner or your friend or your or family member. And so I think that's huge. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Learning how to communicate appropriately communicate, should I say, yeah. it is definitely key to any relationship, not just an intimate relationship, any relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I've definitely improved on. And, and I actually currently work every day on I just in general with everyone, you know, even talking to you or talking to my children or my parents, even any difficult situation, it requires exactly what you said, emotional intelligence. And you have to be able to kind of like keep a lid on it, listen, and then process through what does this mean for me? What does this mean for them? And then go from there. Absolutely. So Um, those are the positives. And like I said, the bads are, I still... I don't think I'll get over what my triggers are. I just deal with them better. Right. And and I think, you know, I, I, a lot of conversation about triggers are like, is that a lot of people are, I think it's a hard conversation because if your spouse or your partner does something that triggers you, I think it's important for them to know that that triggers you, but it's not, I don't think, I think there's a, it's an unbalance to like, okay, do I stop doing that? Or how do I, or can I stop doing that? Or like, who's in control? You know, is it, is it your problem or is it my problem that you're triggered? And I think that's a huge conversation and I don't think there's a right answer to it, but I think just communicating, you know, and, and trying to work together. So you're not uncomfortable by something, or I can try to, you know, keep myself from mentioning something or doing something or going someplace or you know I think it I think it's just such a huge it's it's like its own little battlefield right yep so something just simple that for me that is still a trigger that I definitely had to communicate because for most people it's just joking around Mm -hmm. so say you're joking around on the bed and you pin someone down oh that's a trigger for me I can't do that I let me tell you if I got a hand loose I'd be hitting you yeah just the emotional response that comes with that from having that done violently so many times. So I had to be like, yeah, like you can't pin me down. I know you're joking, but for me, that's not a joke. Yeah. And so obviously he doesn't do that, but, but to like begin with my significant other now, not knowing that, that that's just joking around to most people. Yeah. And, And so I was like, yeah, no, you can't do that. And this is why. Yeah. And so obviously he has enough respect for me that he doesn't. So (laughs) <laughs> yes but, but that's something huge. Like that. it doesn't even have to be like blaringly obviously abusive things that you would be like oh yeah clearly don't punch me that's a trigger don't yeah. choke me that's a trigger yeah, yeah but little simple things like that that some people think is just joking around right for me it's not absolutely communication is key 100 percent. yeah so how does 
how does it feel being in a healthy relationship now? Good. Sometimes I still have to catch myself to not be, how do I want to put it? Sometimes I have to catch myself not putting myself first. Not putting myself first. Oh. So sometimes I put everybody else before myself still. I default to that sometimes. I think that's that's just a a, a woman trait. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. I agree. Hey, that's so like default some, settings for us. Yeah. And then sometimes like if a certain subject can be triggering for me, um, you know, the whole world right now is talking about women's rights. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes depending on the company I am in, mm -hmm. those conversations are very triggering for me Yeah, because a lot of that leans back to control. Yep. And if you want to see someone that's a feminist, give you an abused woman who's, who's on the other side yeah. and you'll see that. And so just sometimes those conversations, and I have to realize that Sometimes I'm the one that's triggered mm -hmm. and it's not necessarily an inappropriate conversation. Yeah. But it's and one then, that I'm going to excuse myself from. Yes. Right. Like I, I'm not in a proper place for this conversation. I need to step out. Yeah. Like I'm not going to be productive in this talk. So I'm just going to take a back seat. So sometimes I have to do that. Um, or sometimes I still don't speak up probably when I should. Mm -hmm. I just let it kind of stew sometimes. Yeah. You know, and I think it's important, you know, I, I think it's important and you know that I am a firm believer of this, that we're, we're all under construction. There's not like an end point to discovering who you are and becoming who the person you're supposed to be. Like that's a constant, it's a journey and there's not an end date to that. So you're always learning, you're always evolving, you're always becoming and growing and discovering who Tristan, who Courtney is. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It's a never ending story. So um, what, what, I think I have two, I have kind of two questions. I thought about this question this morning. Um, what would you say to somebody who is a family member, a friend, or just a bystander who knows of somebody who is like, what advice would you give that bystander, whether it's a family friend or just coworker, um, to somebody to like, what advice would you give to them in that situation where they know that somebody in their direct circle is being abused? So first and foremost, let them know that, you know, they're being abused. So they know they're not alone. Mm -hmm. Um, second, like I said, on average, it takes like seven times for someone to really lose an abuser. Yep. Always let them know that you're always there whenever they're ready to leave. And it doesn't matter if it's one time, if it's 10 times or 20 times, you're going to be there when, and if they leave, mm -hmm. because when you're in that situation, you truly believe you have no one else. Right. 100%. And so the moment you have someone genuine Mm -hmm. the, a non-abuser that's genuine that you can trust mm -hmm. is the time that in the abused mind 
mm-hmm. they might think about leaving. It gives them a glimmer of hope to say, yeah. maybe I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. Maybe there is a way out of this. Maybe I can do this. You know, and, and it, it, in the abuse cycle is very long. It's not short. It's not overnight. It's very methodical. So when you're talking to these individuals, you have to realize it's like gaining weight. It doesn't happen overnight and it's not going to come off overnight Mm -hmm. and they're not going to leave overnight. Most times, unless something dramatic happened, they're not leaving on the overnight. It's going to take time. It's going to take weeks, months, years. And that's typical. Yeah. Very typical. Very typical. So Um, basically just stick it out. (laughs) (laughs) as as long as you're giving that person a glimmer of hope and you know and and I think it's important to say is like you don't have to be like here's like let's let's come up with a plan let's do this let's do this and like push them to make a decision that decision has to be on the on the on the on the survivor or the victims um it has to be on their time when they're ready and I think a lot of bystanders or family members get kind of frustrated because they know what's going on they know that you need to leave, but, and it's almost like they get frustrated because you haven't left yet. And that might not be in your situation. Cause like you said, for a long time, nobody knew, but I know in a lot of situations, people do know, and they get frustrated because the, 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 the victim's not leaving. So Correct. I think you're just saying is like, be patient, be the glimmer of hope and don't push, you know, cause the victim's always going to leave when, when they're ready, when, and you know, and what in my world, when, when you know, you only know when enough is enough. Somebody can't tell you when enough is enough. Correct. And the victim is going to lean on the person they know most in that situation. And that's the abuser. So if you're also pushing that person, they're going to pull away from you first because they don't know you as well. They can't trust you right. and they're not going to, if all they feel is pressure from you as well. They will not take your advice if they feel pressure because they don't trust you. It's what they've been programmed to do. So what words of encouragement would you give someone who has recently left or is still in a domestic violence situation? There's life on the other side and it's better than where you're at. Absolutely. And like, was there any resources that you use like when you left or resources that maybe somebody provided you? Um, I know working in a hospital, so, tons of resources. Yeah, so, but- yeah I, I didn't use any professional resources, honestly. I probably should have. Mm-hmm. Um, I did, well, let's rewind though. We're, we're now talking, 20, talking like in 22 years ago. Right, so the laws have changed now. If you get arrested for domestic violence and you've choked somebody, it's a felony because they know people who choke individuals tend to kill individuals. So um, he, he was charged and he had to pay a fine and it was dropped to a misdemeanor. And so even now, so the laws have changed even such that um, if you break someone's tooth, it's considered a bone and then it's a felony. Oh, that's so, good. yeah, so laws have changed. So even then, I'm sure there were resources. They're definitely not what they are today. Um, but I moved back in with my mom. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I did very purposefully um, was I made sure I had an education Mm -hmm. because I knew in my heart of hearts and at the end of the day, somehow an education would be able to help me get out of this situation. And it did, I uh, I was able to financially 
support myself after I finish college. You know, and I will say that I was actually shocked when you said that you were still in college because a lot of times an abuser will literally like even stop you from doing that. Like they don't want you to have that, that, that connection with the outside world. They don't want you to have an education. They don't want you to be able to have something to fall back on. So I'm very like that, that's a small blessing that you were, you know, that situation, that relationship, like that wasn't something he was able to take away from you. And I think the only reason he allowed me to do that. And when I say allowed, it wasn't allowed, um, was because he had a persona to upkeep Mm -hmm. and he wanted everybody to think his family life was perfect. Mm -hmm. He wanted people to think that his children were perfect. His wife was perfect. Everybody was educated. And I think that's the only reason he allowed me to continue to go to school was he wanted everybody to believe he had the perfect family and somebody that was pregnant at 16 and uneducated is not perfect. Ah, that's, that's interesting. That's good. Now it makes sense. So so it was, it was, it was lucky. Yeah, for sure. And, and thank God, because now you're, you have your own career, you are doing great. You're doing amazing things. Um, and so it's definitely a blessing. Definitely. It, 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 it created my out. Mm -hmm. So what advice, if you could give your younger self some advice, what piece of advice would you give your 16 year old self? A don't get pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) Not at 16. Um, no, I mean, this probably is going to sound bad. I don't think that was the worst thing in the world. I raised my own son. He's a very functional adult. He's a great man. Actually, he's almost 30. Um, and honestly, I would think as a younger self, just think more of yourself. Think a little bit more about your future, what you're doing now that can affect your future. And I know that's hard for kids. They don't have that capacity, but even if they just think about it in terms of six months from now, what would that look like? Not five years, just six months. What would that look like? Right. Definitely. Well, thank you. Thank you. So as we wrap up, I just want to, I just want to say thank you again for um, giving me this opportunity to use my voice and use this platform and to share your voice on this very sensitive, but silenced topic. Um, I think you said it before, this is, these are topics, you know, sexual assault, domestic violence, suicide. They're all topics that really are silenced because people, one, people don't like to talk about them because they don't want to, to give it a, give something. They don't want it to be real. They don't want to know that it's happening in their next door neighbor's house. They don't want it to know that the family members, their family members going through it, a friend's going through it, a coworkers, because it's just, it's just too much for some people to handle. And so I, I appreciate you using your voice to give awareness to domestic violence and, you know, sexual assault awareness. And so I just want to make sure as we wrap up that, um, there, there is a national domestic violence hotline and that number is 1-800-799-7233 or you can text START or 88788 to get a hold of somebody with the domestic violence hotline, which is 24-7, 365 days a year. And so 
Thank you guys so much for joining us today. Um, you can follow us on the Fearlessly Inspired Society on Facebook and Instagram. And we can't wait to share more topics just like this with you in the future. And um, we look forward to the next time. Thank you. Thanks, Tristan, so much. Thank you.